Hi, everybody. Uh, we're going to start our program this evening right away. Um, I'd just like to welcome you on behalf of Wycliffe College and the Meeting House to our monthly pub night. And we're very pleased this evening to have a very special guest, Dr. Amanda Bankhausen. Uh, Dr. Bankhausen is from Calvin Theological Seminary, but also an alumni of here. So it's exciting to have her back. And we look forward to talking a little bit about her new book, which we have here. And uh, the bookstore will be bringing some copies later, but it's just released. It's not even officially re released yet. Couple Tuesday, but we got some advanced copies. It's the Gospel According to Eve. And so we'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So uh, just like uh, to welcome Dr. Bankhausen here. And uh, we're looking forward to the chat tonight. So thank you. Can I just say, this is the coolest thing ever, that you have like this pub theology night. I'm going to have to bring this back to Calvin, so yay Wycliffe. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess this conversation is timed pretty well because uh, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with what's happened on social media lately, but uh, just this past week, uh, John MacArthur uh, made a statement uh, about Beth Moore, uh, and it's kind of been going around social media telling her to go home. Um, what was your kind of response to that statement when you heard it, and uh, what did you think of, of that? Yeah, so probably like many of the women in this room who have seen that clip, and maybe some of the men too, I, that was really hurtful. Um, it wasn't just hurtful to Beth Moore, it was hurtful to women. and. Um, what I was struck by is that women have been fighting those kinds of attitudes for centuries, right? And I think that's one of the things that comes out in the book is that um, it wasn't just what John MacArthur said, it was the way it was said that um, there was a sense of um, disrespect toward Beth Moore that was um, sort of diminished uh, her, her calling and her, 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 her humanity, actually. So, um, yeah, women, I think, have been battling those kinds of attitudes for a very long time. And so to hear it reiterated in 2019, that felt very, very wrong. Um, so I am so grateful to all the men and women who kind of stood up and said, no, this is not appropriate. This is not the way we act in the Christian community. And in fact, um, what we want to say to Beth Moore is not go home, but you are my sister. You are my sister in Christ and we love you. So, um, but I think, um, yeah, again, um, just sort of reflecting on, on how women have been dealing with this uh, in history, we see that um, in a variety of ways that women have had to fight to be recognized in, as full human beings and um, recognized for the value and worth um, that they have, the dignity that they have as, as people who have been made in the image of God. And I, I think the church would do really well to find ways of communicating that to the broader culture, rather than saying things like, go home, you're not welcome. Yeah. So why don't we get, uh, talk a little bit about the book. Um, uh, obviously, there's a 
kind of a history to uh, the writing of it. What, what parts of your personal life or your experience led you uh, or made you feel like you needed to write this book and why for this time and why this topic? Yeah, well, I think uh, the genesis of this book, I didn't realize it at the time, but I served as a, a campus minister at the University of Michigan. And I had a young woman come to me, and she was studying uh, the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, her lit classes. And she's like, yeah, the English is such that I just am not getting this. Can you help me understand the, the, what I'm reading and, uh, so that I can pass my class? <laughs> so I met with her a couple of times, and we were studying the text together. And she was really interested in it from a literary perspective. But then at one point I said to her, well, is this something that um, compels you to, to uh, seek God? Like, is this something that, you know, do you hear God in the Bible? And, and is, is the Christian faith something that you would be interested in? And her response was so striking to me. She said, um, I, I would never become a Christian because... Uh, Christianity and the Bible is not good news for women. <laughs> um, I, I was so taken aback by that. It was such a hard thing to hear that this woman felt like the Christian faith was not good news for women. And so that planted a seed in me. And so then when I um, began studying here and Marion was, uh, Taylor was doing her work on recovering women interpreters, and then I started teaching at a school in Iowa, and I was asked to teach a class, and I, an elective, and I thought, well, why don't I do um, a class on Genesis 1 through 3? And I have no idea why I chose that. Um, I can only imagine that this is the work of the Spirit at this point. And I thought, well, why don't we study the history of interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3? And I really didn't know what we were getting into, but I found this anthology of readings on Genesis 1 through 3, uh, Christian, Muslim, and Jewish readings. And we started going through it as a class. And just um, reading after reading had this sort of negative view of Eve. Um, and not only was uh, the description and characterization of Eve incredibly negative, but the interpreters then made Eve uh, a, a, an archetype for all women. So if Eve was characterized negatively, then all women sort of bore those qualities and characteristics, right? And um, so, I mean, it was, it was just heartbreaking. We went through um, reading after reading, century after century of these very negative interpretations of Eve. And then we came across a reading by a woman named Christine Bazan. Um, and she wrote in 1399 a poem, um, Letter of the Love of God, I think it's is what it's called. And um, in it, she takes up uh, the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the creation of Eve, and then the fall of human beings, and she gives an entirely different interpretation 
than what I had heard in these previous readings. And I was just like blown away. I thought, how is it that this woman in the 14th century is speaking of women having dignity and value and worth and Eve being especially blessed by God. How is she seeing in this text something so very different than her predecessors, right? And I thought, um, so just uh, the anthology didn't have many women in it. It had Phyllis Tribble in, um, quite later, quite a bit later in the anthology. But there's this one lone woman, Christine de Bazan, in the 14th century. And I got to thinking, she can't be alone. She can't be the only woman's writing that we have on this story. And given the fact that this story had such a negative effect on women's lives, um, it, it bolstered a system of patriarchy that meant that women were denied education. They were denied um, uh, the right to own property. They were denied the opportunity to pursue a vocation. They were denied the right to vote. They were denied the right to participate in the public square. They were denied even the choice um, to marry or not to marry, right? So, Eve had kind of bolstered this system of patriarchy, and it made me wonder whether, along with Christine de Bazan, there were other women who resisted that interpretation and therefore this system of patriarchy that had put all kinds of limitations on their lives. And so I began digging, and um, like it's astounding. There were um, I think I, I gathered maybe 150 women between the 14th and the 19th century who said something about this story. And I thought, how come we don't know about these women? And what's so interesting is a lot of the things that they said are things that now 20th and 21st century feminist biblical interpreters are saying. But they were saying them back in the 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. And I thought, we need to know about this. The church needs to know about this. Yeah, there's kind of a, in, the, in history, you either see Eve as a villain right. or as a hero, right? right? And so in some ways, your book is trying to redeem Eve and our perceptions of Eve. Can you fill in the audience a little bit about what is kind of the typical argument of Eve as a villain? Uh, what, what are some of the things that are said and how is this problematic and how does that affect the way that we uh, relate to women uh, and, and their role in society and the church? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, interpreters, uh, the sort of the dominant or the traditional interpretation of the story would say, for instance, that in Genesis 2, Eve um, was a secondary creation. She was derivative, right? Adam was created first, and Eve was created out of Adam. Um, and she was uh, um, to be his helper. And so the assumption was because she was to be his helper that uh, she was somehow inferior to him. And there was a kind of hierarchy created between men and women. Um, uh, so, so right, even, even in the beginning, even before the fall, you get a sense of Eve being 
secondary, uh, derivative, inferior. Um, interpreters often wrestled with what it meant that she was a helper. And um, Augustine says something like, um, you know, God, if God had really wanted woman to have a companion, he would have created another male. So obviously she's not, you know, created to be his companion. So she must be a helper just in terms of procreation. So he limited it to um, women are men's helpers because they bear their children. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so even before the fall, we get this sense that the woman is secondary, she's derivative, um, that the man has kind of a headship over the woman. And then certainly with the fall, um, you know, when you read Genesis 3, interpreters said, well, look, she plunged the world into sin. I think Tertullian, he has this famous statement about, um, you know, sort of he's, he's addressing women, and he says, you all are Eve, and you are the reason the Son of God had to die. Whoa, right? Um, and <laughs> um, you plunged the world into sin. And so on, women sort of were made to carry the guilt and the shame of Eve. And then the, the understanding of um, the, the consequences of sin was that this was somehow God's punishment, that because Eve had sort of stepped out of her sphere, um, um, what she was sort of ordained to do, and engaged in conversation with the serpent and ate of the fruit and then gave it to Adam, that she now needed to be put back in her place, and that's why now the man should rule over the woman. And so that interpretation, this idea of the man needs to rule over the woman, and Augustine says this too, to restrain the spread of sin, right? So man rules over woman to restrain the spread of sin. So women have lived with this. These ideas, whether they have been explicit or implicit in the culture, and I think we are continuing to live with that legacy of that interpretation even today. Yeah, and then when you fast forward to the church, it makes sense why men would not want a woman to preach or teach because you just want, you know, to stop <laughs> right. this from happening. And, uh, yeah, well, so, so for... Exactly. Uh, preaching and teaching, you assume authority, right? And so um, while women would say, well, the authority is in the spirit and the authority is in the word, uh, uh, churches understood that the authority was also in the person. And so that meant that women could not preach and teach because they could not have authority over men. Yeah. So in our modern context, uh, I don't know if people are familiar with the terminology, there's complementarians and egalitarians. Can you explain a little bit about how that kind of conversation is unfolding in today's world? And this is kind of where John MacArthur kind of comes in and why he made that uh, statement that he did. Yeah, so uh, egalitarians would be that those who believe that uh, women and men are uh, created equal and that created equality has social implications, right? So because women and men are created equal, they should have equal opportunities, equal rights, 
Um, they should be treated with equal value. Uh, they should have equal representation within the law, all of that, all across the board, right? Um, equal representation in the church, etc. Um, complementarianism is this idea that God ordained different roles for men and women. And um, because of that, um, men, so complementarians would often, will often say men and women are spiritually equal, uh, but they have different social roles, right? And so, and it just so happens that the role that God gave men was to be the head, and the role that God gave women was to be subordinate to men. And so, uh, yeah, so you get people like John MacArthur saying of women who are preaching and teaching, they have transcended their sphere, right? The, their God-ordained sphere. Now, <laughs> There is a woman, she's a early 20th century woman, so she's one of the later ones in my book, but her name is Lee Anna Starr. And uh, she was puzzled by this idea that there would be separate spheres for men and women. And she actually goes back to uh, Genesis 1, and she, and she looks at Genesis 1, 28. So she says... Um, in response to this idea that there are separate spheres for men and women, and after reading uh, Genesis 1.28, which talks about both, uh, is addressed to both male and female, that you are to be fruitful and multiply, that you are to rule over the earth and subdue it, right? And we can talk about rule over the earth and subdue it, that kind of language. But in any case, what she's focused on is that that was addressed to both male and female. And so she, she observes, women's God-given God sphere is as wide as the Earth's circumference, as high as the firmament, and as deep as the sea. For Star, the woman would literally have to step off the Earth to transgress the limits of her sphere. I think that's beautiful, right? I mean, that's the Bible. Uh, she's drawing that from Scripture itself and saying, well, Scripture doesn't put these limits on women. Why has society, why has the church put these limits on women? And what's interesting about your book is all these figures kind of occur before the modern feminist movement. Exactly. Because one of the criticisms of the complementarians are, are Egalitarians are just adopting a cultural, you know, moment, and uh, and it's a cult, it's a, an idea of culture, not an idea of scripture. But you're kind of challenging that underlying assumption in some ways. Yeah, I think what's really interesting um, when I started studying these women and realizing that they were saying things about Eve that uh, I had never heard before until. Um, feminist biblical interpreters sort of drew these things out. Um, what I realized is when we trace the feminist movement, we trace it back maybe to the late 19th century, uh, the first wave of feminism. But, but in fact, these ideas about women's equality 
uh, didn't first emerge in the feminist movement. They first emerged in women reading scripture and saying, I think God wants more for us than what the church has been teaching. I think God wants more for us than what society has been teaching. And in fact, uh, they would say, man, if, if the church would only read the Bible, then they wouldn't succumb to the patriarchy of the culture, but would in fact see women as equals. I think that's really powerful, right? It's, it turns the whole conversation on its head, particularly in relation to some of the stuff John MacArthur said. Yeah. Uh, it was interesting. I was actually having a conversation with a friend last night, and he's going for a job interview uh, in a seminary, and he was like, I'm kind of a soft complementarian. Like, how do I approach that? And, and it should be noted that there is a spectrum um, in this conversation. What would you say to somebody that's kind of in the middle where they just... They don't quite know what to do because on the one hand, it seems that there are these passages in scripture that clearly say, you know, I do not allow a woman to teach or hold, hold authority over a man in the church. You know, um, how, how do you negotiate those things? And he also is saying, I come from a, a culture that's conservative and it's an ethnic church and we're just not even there. So I haven't really dealt with those uh, challenges yet. What would you say to somebody kind of in that situation? Yeah, so, I mean, in some ways, that is my background. I come from a, a quite conservative denomination. Uh, right now, in the denomination where I am ordained and have been ordained for 20 years, uh, we are, are still at a place where the church is saying, well, you can interpret scripture in two different ways, right? You can um, interpret it in a way that supports uh, women's ordination or not. And um, that has put women in a really awkward place, frankly. Uh, it's, it's not been the healthiest decision for the church, although I understand why they're doing that. Uh, they're trying to accommodate uh, the, those who don't agree with women's ordination and maintain unity and peace. So I think there's, there's a, a pastoral answer, um, but I, I guess, uh, and, and I... I you know, I'm, I'm, I live in that environment, so I journey with a lot of people who find themselves in that place. But the theological answer, uh, again, sort of having spent time with these women in history, I think they would say, um, well, first of all, if you start, so, so some of them would say, if you start with Genesis 3 as the normative picture of what a woman is, then you interpret Paul differently than if you start at Genesis 1. If you start at Genesis 1, where male and female are created in the image of God, and they are both given this commission to be fruitful and multiply, then you read the rest of scripture through a different lens. And you read Paul through a different lens. And actually what you end up doing is you realize that actually there's a lot of passages in scripture that support uh, the leadership of women. Um, not just the Deborahs and the Huldahs in the Old Testament, but 
uh, at, and the women at the, at the tomb um, who were commissioned to go and tell. But Paul himself in Romans 16 names all these women who were leaders in the church. And all of a sudden you're forced to reconcile Paul with Paul. But if you read through Genesis 1, you're more inclined to say, oh, we then need to read these Pauline texts within a particular context. So someone like Margaret Fell, who was a Quaker, uh, she would say, well, what Paul was addressing in these texts that forbid women to speak or preach or those kinds of texts, uh, what, what Paul was addressing was uh, women who didn't have that inner light in them women who weren't filled with the Holy Spirit. He wanted them to be quiet because their prattle was just prattle, right? Um, what he wanted was for people who had the word of God in them, who had something to say to be given a voice. And uh, so you, again, you read it differently if you read it through Genesis 1 than if you read it through Genesis 3. The other thing, um, having dealt with all these Pauline passages, um, what, what the women in history said is, and I'm a Calvinist, I come from a Reformed tradition, so I can appreciate this, is that when you, when you hold to a view of having um, one sex over another, one gender over another, um, you're not taking seriously uh, the, the effect of sin. Right? If you give one gender power over another gender, then, um, and, and making the assumption that that gender, that, that uh, males should be in, um, have headship over women because somehow they are, have more rationality or they have more morality, but then you're not taking into consideration the the effects, the, the magnitude of the effects of sin on both male and female. That you would give one gender power over another without any limitations on that power, right? So um, someone like Amelia Lanyard says, well, why um, should you be our tyrants like, of men? Why should you be our tyrants? And Mary Estelle says, if all men are born free, why are all women born slaves? Like, why would there be this inequity between men and women? And does it make sense, given the fact that both men and women fell into sin, both men and women have an inclination towards sin, that you would give one power over the other? And um, I don't know, I'm kind of inclined to say, yeah, that seems really whack. <laughs> so uh, what, what would your advice be to, um, like you'll see in church directories where you'll have a senior pastor and a pastor of pastoral care and then all of a sudden you have a, a director of family ministries and you know um, there's this shift like the unwillingness to call a woman a pastor because of theological um, reasons. Uh, what, what would your advice be to that woman? Should she be pushing from within her church context or should she just leave the church or what should she do um, and what should those uh, people around her advocate for her? like how do we how do we negotiate those types of uh, contexts yeah that you know 
That is... Because essentially they're doing the job of a pastor yeah. without the title. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I'm a professor at a seminary and I send a lot of women actually into positions like that. And um, I try to support them, but I grieve with them that their gifts are not fully recognized with a title and that they fight, have to fight and advocate for their own sense of call, um, that the church doesn't come around them. So men tend to come to seminary supported by family, supported by the church. They have lots of people who are cheering them on. In my context, uh, women tend to come to seminary because they can do no other. And one of the things that's interesting, again, in the history of women's um, reading of Eve and the, and the history of women in the church is that um, many women felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to live out these roles um, in ministry, to be preachers, to be teachers um, in ministry. And they didn't feel like, they didn't always feel like the church accepted them. And so that kind of pushed them out of the church, at least out of the, um, the formal structures of the church. And they began doing their own thing, living out their call outside of the structures of the church. And I think, what a loss that is, right, to the church, that we would push gifted women out of the church where they have to, where they're sort of making their way doing living out their vocation without the blessing of the church and not benefiting the church um, and so i guess i would want to say to the church um, i think we need to do a better job of recognizing the gifts and honoring the gifts of women and if a man deserves the title of pastor and a woman is doing the same job she deserves that title too um, yeah. So uh, when we invited you to come, I was talking to Mary and I was kind of saying, well, why don't you do the interview? And she's like, no, you should do the interview. A man should, you know, interview because you need to hear some things too. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, close. I'm kind of paraphrasing a little bit. But I guess, um, like, as a man, as a white male, I have my blind spots. Uh, so can you educate me? What, what do I need to look out for? What do I need to know? Um, uh. Whoa. <laughs> okay, ladies, this is our time. <laughs> oh. It's not just for me. It's for all the men in the room right now. So. Yeah, so it's interesting because um, after the John MacArthur, Beth Moore thing, I'm, I'm a pretty avid Facebook user. And a lot of women and men in my circles use that frame that they put around their picture. Uh, I'm something about, I'm not going home. I support women in ministry. I can't remember. Do you yeah. know? Yeah, do not go home. You know, uh, yeah, I, yeah, something like yeah. that. And um, there was a friend of mine who wrote a blog post, and he was a male, where he talked about the need for those with power and influence. And he was referring to his male colleagues, uh, that it is time for our male colleagues to stand up and alongside of women, and also to make space for them. So, um, 
It's not enough to say, I support women in ministry, um, if you're not going to put your money where your mouth is. It's, it's time for men to say, I support women in ministry, and so I am going to take myself out of the pulpit and let a woman preach this Sunday. Um, I support women in ministry, so I am not going to take this leadership position because I think a woman should stand in this place. Um, so, that's a little harsh, isn't it? <laughs> but I do think it's time that we, like, because women have been a marginalized population for so long, because of this history of uh, gender relations, I, I do think that if we're going to get some kind of balance and equilibrium, and this is not just for the sake of women, I think it's actually for the sake of the gospel. Um, it's for the sake of giving a witness to the wider world for healthier uh, ways of being men and women and working as men and women together. That, um, that, that men who have power and privilege use that power and privilege to create space for those who are marginalized. So I know that's a really tall order, but I, I just don't know any other way. Women have, been, women have been fighting for themselves for centuries, and we're still here, right? Like 2019, we're still fighting. So what was some of the big surprises that you found in the book? Yeah. Well, one was that there were just so many women who exhibited a kind of resistance to uh, the traditional or the dominant interpretation of this text and said, no, there is another way to interpret Eve. We just, we just do not buy that God would create us as secondary creatures. We believe that we are valued and loved by God that we are human beings created in the image of God and we have worth. And that there were just so many women who did that, who, uh, and wrote that and um, circulated these writings publicly um, was a big surprise. I think the other, and I mentioned it earlier, was that they were so confident in their interpretation of this text that God would, um, not have created them as inferior beings, um, but that God had blessed them and um, saw them as beings of value and worth. They were so confident in this interpretation that they were able to sort of label patriarchy as a social construct and, um, and call the church to account on this. Yeah, and say you have adopted the culture rather than the Bible as your dominant story. So like in this kind of, we're still dealing with these issues. Um, if somebody does hold a very strong opinion uh, on the other side, a complementarian, a strong complementarianism, like how do you respond to that? Like, <laughs> do you just write them off or do you, like how do you navigate that when it's something that's very hurtful for you and with all your past experience, um, how do you approach that? And is there like, can we work together on a whole bunch of other things? You know, are we still part of the body? You know, like how does, how does that all work out for you? Yeah. Um, 
I need another drink for that. Sure. <laughs> I'm kidding. No. Um, I guess, absolutely. Like, I live in that culture, right? So, absolutely, I want to journey together. And I do think there are all kinds of things we can work on. But I do think it is a missed opportunity. And it compromises the gospel um, when we... Um, when, when, uh, that, when we have a, a philosophy or an ideology of gender relations that, um, pits, uh, that creates a hierarchy between men and women um, and suggests that women are of lesser value. Um, and I know complementarians would not say that, but that's in effect how it feels. Um, so uh, I was going to say something else. I can't remember. Um, Oh, Catherine Booth. So some of you may know Catherine Booth as the mother of the Salvation Army, right? She says this. She says, what if the church is wrong? Like, what if the church has been wrong on this issue of women? Like, how many women have been diminished? How many women have been limited in what they're calling, how many women have been hurt, and how has the gospel been limited in terms of those who would go out and proclaim the gospel? How has the gospel been limited because we won't allow women to proclaim God's word? I think that's just a really profound question. Like, what if the church is wrong on this or has been wrong? Um, and for my complementarian friends, I don't know if they ever considered that question, right? Yeah, I've enjoyed The Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you watched it or... It's kind of like the imagination when you take patriarchy to its logical extreme and the biblical illusions in there are just so powerful. And, uh, and I don't think... I think it's popular because it does resonate with a lot of people outside the church. Um, that is their perception of what religion does for women. And uh, it's, yeah. So I can't afford Hulu, yeah. which shows The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> so buy my book and maybe I'll be able to afford the subscription. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So uh, we wanted to open up uh, some opportunity for the audience to ask some questions. So Terry, has a roving mic, and uh, if you want to ask a question, just feel free to uh, put up your hand and we can uh, get to you. Thank you very much, Amanda. Stephen Andrews. Um, uh, so we've got two accounts, uh, creation accounts. M many would say we have two creation accounts. And uh, the women interpreters that you've talked about have, uh, have uh, ap appealed to the first creation account. Um, but how would you yourself um, hold those two together? Um, where the first creation account might seem to affirm a kind of egalitarian um, uh, understanding of male and female, but the second one is, is very strongly sociological. Uh, you know, uh, uh, your desire will be for him, but he shall rule over you, Genesis 3. Yeah, yep. Um, well, let me start with um, 
the, the, the way that the women put together Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So they started with the assumption that God created men and women equal, male and female are equal. So when they got to the notion that the woman is the helper, uh, they had all kinds of creative ways of dealing with it. I mean, they did the typical, um, like Phyllis Tribble talks about, and, and a lot of um, scholars now recognize that that word for helper, azer, is a word that is also used of God's relationship to Israel, right? So God is the helper of Israel. Um, so clearly there's no hierarchy assumed uh, between, uh, God is not a lower being because he's a helper of Israel to Israel, right? So, um, so they would point that out. But <laughs> There's this African-American woman in the 19th century. Her name is Virginia Broughton. And she's like, like, woman, the woman is supposed to be man's helper. That means she's supposed to be his helper in everything. Like when he goes to the bar <laughs> and when he goes to work and when he preaches from the pulpit, like the woman should be there being his helper. <laughs> um, so they really saw themselves and they saw Genesis 2 as outlining a way in which men and women are to work together to support each other in this work that God has given them to do. Um, when they get to Genesis 3, actually, they largely interpret uh, what some have taken to be judgments on the man and the woman. So the, he shall rule over, or your desire shall be for him and he shall rule over you. Um, they took that as a consequence of the fall. So God um, was spelling out the consequences of sin. But actually, some of them went a step further and said, actually, God was warning the woman, watch out, because you're going to love your husband, but he's going to try and exert his authority over you, and you better watch out. You need to resist this. Um, and so they, they saw the, the, um, those, those verses, so Genesis uh, 3.16, Sixteen, in particular, they saw that verse as a warning that God was giving women um, that they they should they are called to resist the attempt of men to rule over them. And in fact, uh, I can't remember who says it, but one of the women says this. In fact, is the first uh, the second sin, sort of like the first sin being the eating of the fruit. But this, uh, the next way that the consequences of um, uh, sin are exhibited is that the man is going to try and rule over everything. <laughs> and it just so happens the woman is the closest thing to him, so chooses to rule over the woman. So they, um, yeah, they, again, starting with Genesis 1, they interpreted these subsequent chapters and then again into the New Testament. All those passages which um, some interpreters hold up and say, well, look at, there's male headship here. They interpreted it through a different lens because they read Genesis 1 first. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah. They also go to Mary right away, right? So many women who uh, say, well, yes, Eve, what, you know, Eve fell, but look what Mary, what Mary did, right? She bore the Christ child who liberates us. So they would say, 
or even what Tribble says, it's prescriptive. It's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. It describes what happens as a result of sin. It doesn't prescribe that forever. But the, the Eve Mary move is very popular, right? That um, even Sojourner Truth, uh, that famous um, black preacher, like she says, you know, we have heard that Eve caused men to, uh, Eve caused problems, caused us to sin. Do give us a chance, you know, like, you know, look at Mary. And um, so I think let, let us have a chance to come up. Give us a chance because we are redeemed, right, in Christ. So uh, that Eve Mary thing is, is one of the very famous hermeneutical, hermeneutical, hermeneutical yeah. shifts. And actually, just to add to that, so there's this woman, Amelia Lanier of the 16th century, and she, and she, t she has this whole poem where she talks, uh, she sort of imagines a conversation between Pilate and his wife. <laughs> and and she, when she's reflecting on what Pilate did, so Pilate basically created the opportunity for Jesus to, to be killed, right? She says, well, why do you blame women? Why do you blame Eve for Christ's death? It's clearly Pilate's fault. So why do women carry that shame? Why do men not carry the same shame and guilt because of what Pilate has done? Um, so it's, it's really interesting the way they sort of draw on different passages of scripture to say, you know, men are not guiltless either, right? So why are we holding women accountable for something that we're not holding men to, to a different standard, yeah. So is this only a problem under the dome of the church? Like I feel like society around us has changed so much. I work in a downtown office where, uh, I mean, right, all the top leaders and directors are females and, and nobody's saying, oh, they might be too weak to lead, or... Um, so it kind of puts us in an awkward position as the church to still be grappling with this. Yeah, you know, I... Uh, so in the postscript, um, I, I just... I sort of reflect on, and going back to that story of my encounter with this young woman on the campus, and I reflect on... Um, you know, is the gospel good news for women? Is the Bible good news for women? And uh, the conclusion I come to is, yes, it is, but the church has to live that out. And I think there is still um, a need for growth in this area and an opportunity for the church to do something that, actually, if we look at the broader culture, I don't think that the way that our society has thought about gender relations or male and female is very healthy either. And I just wish the church would um, work on and have conversations about what it looks like to relate to each other as male and female in ways that can provide a healthy model, that can be a witness to the gospel, right? Um, I think that's sort of the missional aspect for me of all of this. Uh, that um, this isn't just about um, what's going on within the church, but how we as a church um, present the gospel to a watching world. So, yeah. Um, thank you um, for the talk. Uh, I was wondering if in your 
uh, look at uh, scholars prior to the first wave feminists, if you found anything akin to the hermeneutic of suspicion that Elizabeth Stady Canton and uh, a, a strong lineage of uh, feminist interpreters from her line would often take with the, uh, with especially with this text, because it is one of the most contentious texts and it's often the starting point in many ways for where they start with the uh, hermeneutics of uh, suspicion. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I, um, I'm sure there are women who read against the grain. Uh, most of the women I encountered were really trying to read with the text. Um, they saw the problem as not so much the text itself, but the interpretation of the text. So, um, I don't know, Marion, do you know? So there's um, a woman named Annie Besant who was, uh, you know, an atheist, essentially. Yeah, so, yeah, the theosophist. So she, she makes fun of the Bible all the time, right? She said, you know, you Christians, you, you advocate marriage, but look how Abraham treated Hagar, right? And, and so she, that, I think, sort of anticipates the hermeneutic of suspicion, go deeper and look deeper at what's going on really in the stories to see that the ideology behind the text is not really supporting what you say, you know, monogamy, marriage, it's all great. Look, read, read the stories. The patriarchs were not like those guys, right? So I think you have other voices early on, but I think probably the reason you're, they're not coming to mind is that the, the women who wrote about the Bible were orthodox in their theology, right? These are faithful women who really had a strong relationship to God. So they aren't writing against the church, they're writing for the church. And I think that's what, that's why I, I get very excited about evangelicals embracing all these forgotten foremothers because we have a connection with them and they are doing the kind of theological exegesis that we are supposed to be doing. So they're modeling for us something we've forgotten. So I think they should become very important voices that we've neglected, silenced, or forgotten. Yeah. So I'm really uh, very pleased that you've brought them, given them new attention, because this is very exciting. So thank you for your book. Yeah, so thank you for your talk and for your book. I'm really excited about kind of all of those ideas. Um, so wondering in your studies, either preparing for this book or in general, um, if you came across any males who would advocate for women as well. Unfortunately, sometimes men will hear the voices of men more than women, and so if there's balance there. Yeah, in fact, there were. So. Uh, there, there were early um, male voices. Um, so in the 15th to the 17th century in Europe, there was something called the Corel de Femme, and that was a literary debate that took place about the nature and role of women. So men and women were writing about, you know, what is the nature and role of women? And um, so I spent a lot of time with the women, but uh, the women were strongly influenced by, one, church fathers that they would draw from. Um, there were certain church fathers that they felt were kindred spirits or that they could draw from that would um, 
yeah, that read in ways that sparked their own imaginations. And there were a couple of, um, men, there were men who wrote during this period um, that's in ways that supported women's equality, or at least the idea of spiritual equality between men and women. So I do reference a few in the book. Um, so yeah, the women were not alone, and they were part of a larger conversation, some of them, um, in, in these things. Uh, you know, and I, I actually think of someone like um, Anna Maria Van Sherman, um, she is this Dutch woman, so I feel a little bit of a connection with her. <laughs> my, my roots are Dutch. And she, she's this amazing woman. Like, she's a 17th century woman. She knew 14 different languages. Like, she learned Hebrew, Greek, Latin, French, German, um, Syriac, Ethiopic. Like, she learned all these different, Aramaic. I mean, she knew all these different languages, right? And she was competent enough in some of these languages that she would write letters to her friends, for instance, in Greek or Hebrew. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you go, girl. <laughs> anyway, um, but she was one of the first women to go to university in Europe. And so she went to the University of Utrecht. And she had to stand behind, she was, well, she had to stand behind a screen to receive the lesson so she wouldn't distract the men in the class. Um, I know, right? But she was there because the professor of the class invited her and believed in her, believed that she had a, a uh, just a, a talent, a competency uh, for intellectual reasoning and promoted her. Um, so in, it, it's a great question because all along the way, actually, one of the things that we see is um, fathers, brothers, uncles, friends who promoted these women that gave them the ability to write um, these things and have a voice. So goes back to that comment about, you know, the role of men in all of this and creating space for women. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Amanda, for um, reading this book. It's amazing. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, we know that the, the Bible is uh, written by 40 authors over a time period of about 1,500 years, um, particularly in the New Testament, um, 100 years that the Apostle Paul writes, approximately about half the New Testament. Um, based on your research from this book, um, and over the, those 1,500 years, perhaps, in the context of when the Bible is written, first, you know, is there anything that will help us understand really what Paul is trying to address in certain passages around those complicated passages around women that will help us understand really what the Apostle is trying to say in the context of the first century, particularly? Yeah, such a great question, and I think there's some really good scholars that are working on this. Uh, Cynthia Westfall wrote an amazing book on Paul and gender that um, I think maybe gets at some of those kinds of issues. Uh, the women in, uh, in history had all kinds of ideas about what Paul was doing, particularly in um, 1 Timothy, it's 1 Timothy 2, right? Yeah, where um, like that is just a really challenging text. And John Thompson actually wrote a book where he talks about a lot of these texts regarding women, and he, he 
has also collected different interpretations from the Reformation period on these texts. And he's like, the reformers didn't, a lot of them were throwing up their hands going, we have no idea what this means because it is the idea that women are saved through childbirth, for instance. We thought women were saved through the gospel. Like, <laughs> women are saved through faith. <laughs> you know, why, why, why are they all of a sudden being saved through childbirth? And what does that mean if, if um, you're, you can't have children, right? Like, so, so I think what's important to know is that all through history, men and women, women and men, have struggled with these Pauline texts. Um, and there's some really good scholars working on this today. And all of that to say that these texts are not nearly as clear as some would like to say they are about their message for men and women. Yeah. I don't know. Does that help at all? Yeah. I was just mentioning that maybe you could elaborate on the first century context. Um, Jesus commissions the disciples to spread his message. And there's a lot of, seems to be a lot of people interjecting and Paul zeroing in on, and so is, is a, and so is Timothy, about private conversations, mainly by certain women that are easily being led astray and other things. He's particularly pointing that out. There was a problem during the first century, as well as also, also other leaders that Paul's saying, don't look to the leader. The leader's a servant of God representing Christ, and just he's trying to point you to Christ. Or, you know, so is a, women are trying to point others to Christ too. You have that in the church, so but not to get distracted and get off rails. But it seems like the problem that we're having in the first century is the same problem we're having today. We're getting, getting astray by leaders and also other things that are separating us from, distracting us from the real focus, and that is saving, reaching the lost, spreading his message, and loving other people, and etc. Yeah, I think right. that's a good comment. So, yeah, Paul is addressing a particular context, and again, a lot of the women would, would try and unpack that context as best as they understood what was going on. Um, that women, that a lot of them would say, for instance, that Paul was not addressing women as a universal um, uh, group that um, would never, he, you know, he, he never anticipated that women would never preach or speak in church, but it was a specific context where he's addressing women who are perhaps um, speaking out of turn or, or distracting from what was going on or um, like Margaret Fell says, women who don't have the inner light in them and who were maybe causing people to, to um, be turn away from the gospel rather than turn toward God, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that a lot of work has been done on what Paul was actually doing uh, in those texts, why he is addressing women in particular. Um, and again, the women in, in, that I spent time with had lots of ideas about that. Um, but again, I think modern scholars have really done a good job of, of trying to recreate the context into which Paul was speaking. And to say, this is a context-specific issue, that Paul is not worried about women as much as he's worried about um, that the gospel be proclaimed in ways that people can hear it. Yeah. Hi. Uh, do you think that the patriarchal nature of uh, the church had ever um, contributed to uh, the decision-making of the canon of the Bible? So, um, like, how, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, but none of the books are written by women, right? 
Um, and like it's been said that there are other books out there, and at least a couple are like gospels that are written by like Mary or whoever. And it's like, should they be included because they're or whatever? Anyway, I think you get what I mean. Do I get a phone a friend or? <laughs> <laughs> No, let, let me try we have to add three lifelines to our, <laughs> our pub nights <laughs> for the future. Okay, so so this is this is this is a faith stance for me. Okay, so I think the Bible emerged out of a patriarchal culture. I think there's no doubt about it. Um, I also think that the Spirit was at work in bringing the canon together, so that what we have is what we need to understand the good news of Jesus Christ. I believe that with all my heart, but I think that also means that we need to recognize and read these texts um, in light of the fact that they're emerging out of a patriarchal context. We need to read them in their context. That's just good exegesis. So we need to do our job well. Um, the text is not a text that was written to us. Um, it is not a modern text. Actually, I've been working through um, Robert Alter, just recently put out a new translation of the Hebrew Bible. And then he wrote a book on the art of Bible translation, which is a, a phenomenal book. I would recommend it to you all. But um, in it, he talks about the foreignness of the text and that what modern translations try to do is make the text less foreign and feel more like a 21st century text. And he's like, but then you lose the sense that this actually isn't a 21st century text. It is an ancient text that emerged out of a very different cultural context than our own. And we somehow need to recover that sense when we interpret, not because we want to create distance, but because we want to hear the message right. We want to be faithful in our work of interpretation. So I think we're going to end there for now. Um, but uh, Amanda will be here to chat afterwards. And I'm, I have a few announcements. And I'll go around the room so I don't forget anything. Um, U of T Bookstore is here with uh, sneak copies of the book that doesn't get released till Tuesday. And buy lots of them, because Amanda wants to watch The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. And so. <laughs> You know, you don't have to just buy one. You could buy one for your mom and one for your sister, you know. Yeah, Christmas is just around the corner. Um, there's more popcorn and beer that Cole uh, can help you with. Um, next month on the screen, you'll see we have Bruxy Cavey here with Ephraim Radner, and they're going to be talking about God and time and open theism. And stay tuned to Facebook, because there's going to be a movie you should watch beforehand. Uh, so to be kind of in on the conversation, but you can come without watching the movie too, so that's great. Um, there's also a little sign-up sheet right there, or a little iPad, if you want to be signed up for the pub night email list or find out more about the Meeting House or Wycliffe, you can do that there. Um, there's also a Wycliffe little table with some cool coasters that you can take home for your beer at home. And did I remember all... Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Last but not least. No, second last. Uh, Marion Taylor, who stood up and spoke, is a professor who's one of the world experts on this topic. And it's a privilege to have her here in Toronto. And so she offers 
classes on this all the time, and they're great. I took some as a student, and that's not a shameless plug. It's actually really fantastic. Can, can I just say she is my hero? All really. right. That's awesome. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, and they're great. You can do one class even. You don't have to do a whole degree. So uh, it's just a great opportunity uh, for study. And last, but last of all, we'd like just to thank you for making the drive from Grand Rapids and, and sharing this evening with us. It was, uh, it was wonderful. So can you help me in thanking Amanda? And like I said, just feel free to hang out. We're not rushing you out, so uh, enjoy the rest of the evening. Thank you.